You can open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I have learned another lesson as a pastor, and that is don't announce what you're going to preach before you preach it. Because then I have to get behind the pulpit and then always explain why I'm not preaching what I announced I was going to preach. I'll just leave it at that. I have been writing a study, a Bible study series, similar to the Membership Matters, similar to the Membership Matters style for new believers, for new believers. Because I feel like our church needs a resource so that when a man or a woman come to the faith, that you, as an existing believer, could grab that study and say, hey, would you be willing to go through 10 lessons with me on what it means to be a new Christian? And so the idea of that is it, it would be conducive to that. So you could sit down, let's get together, uh, 10 weeks in a row, Tim Hortons, whatever, come over to my house, have coffee, let's go through this together and let's do a study on what it means to be a Christian. And so I'm working on that. It's probably going to be about 10 lessons. Uh, the lesson this morning is from that book. And uh, rough, it's work in progress and so on, but the next two weeks I do want to deal with this issue. And have you ever, maybe January 1st, you know, New Year's resolution, have you ever determined that, you know what, I want to make some change in my life? I'm sick and tired of my old habits, I'm sick and tired of the consequences of my own behavior, whatever it is, so I want to make a change. Have you ever attempted a new diet? Didn't last very long? Have you ever made significant efforts towards change in your life only to discover that you really don't have it in you to affect that change? Have you ever had a New Year's resolution that didn't work, didn't last? Uh, I think you have. What do you realize as a human being? Change is hard. Change is hard. Change is hard because we are creatures of habit, right? Change is hard because we have well-established patterns of thinking and acting. We've spent decades learning to cope with life in a fallen world, right? That's just the nature of life in this world. And so we have settled routines, right? We have settled routines. We have settled patterns and so on. Again, going our whole life long with few restraints, few restraints on our human passions. And so we've developed indulgent patterns of sin and so on. This is your experience and this is my experience, right, in this life, I think. We're going to come to John 3 in just a second. Many of those patterns and behaviors which seem to define us Sometimes really just serve our basic need for self-preservation in a fallen world. And so in our relationships, we found ways to deal with our emotions, uh, sometimes in an unhealthy way. And we've learned how to deal with those who offend us or harm us or otherwise disappoint us. And how do we deal with them? Sometimes through resentment, sometimes through bitterness, sometimes through self-pity, sometimes through vengeance, sometimes through um, retribution. We've all, believer, unbeliever alike, if you're a believer, these, this baggage that you've carried into your salvation, uh, we've all learned mechanisms by which to cope with trials and difficulties, generally through escapism. Some escape into video games, others into entertainment, some into sports, some into hobbies, uh, some into destructive means like drugs and alcohol, uh, some into unhealthy relationships. Or maybe just relationships, trying to find something in a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that really, ultimately, they can't offer. Although some attempts at escapism are relatively harmless, others can destroy lives and relationships. 
It's just life in a fallen world, right? So we've experienced this. And so we are the product of living in a fallen culture and trying to cope with that fallen world. It makes sense then that we would find ways to cope with life considering what a harsh place this is. The Bible says that all of creation groans and travails under the curse of sin. And so you and I are tasked with walking daily through this type of world, really battling our own tendency to always gravitate towards unhealthy ways of coping. And so not only trying to cope with the fallen nature of the world, but the other reality is we all also are personally fallen. And so we have lived decades really without any restraints on our fleshly passions. And so we've developed other habits where, you know what, if I want to eat, I'm going to eat and probably overeat. If I want to have sex, I'm going to have sex, and I'm going to have sex with whom I want, when I want, whether in marriage or outside of marriage, for instance. Uh, You know what, I'm unmotivated, so I'm going to procrastinate, and I'm going to neglect. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, We have just learned to indulge our fleshly passions without any restraints. Now, that's kind of like the state of mankind across the board. But this morning, if you're a Christian, you're saved. Like, okay, well, cool, so then now, all of that's done away with. You're a new creature. Your thoughts have completely changed. Your attitudes have completely changed. Your behaviors have completely changed. That's all your old life, and now you don't have to deal with any of that, right? I hope none of you are agreeing with me. The reality is we've lived... In a fallen world, we've lived as fallen human beings. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He saves you. But guess what? Your mind is still wired the way it was wired. Your passions are still there. You still have to break the habits of trying to cope in this fallen world in an unhealthy way. But we have good news this morning. What's important for us to realize this morning is threefold. First, As believers, we all still have a lingering pattern of thinking and believing and acting, which are the product of our past life. Next, as believers, God has called us to a new ethic. He's called us to a holiness which transforms our thinking and beliefs and priorities and values and behavior. On one hand, we all still have the lingering patterns. On the the other hand, God has called us to a new ethic. And you say, well, there's there's a conflict. Thirdly, God has given us everything we need to see this change progressively happen in our lives. And that's key. And that's the premise of this study. Number one, as believers, we also have lingering patterns of thinking, believing, and acting, which are the product of our past lives of unrestrained lust. Second, God has called us to a brand new ethic. Third, God has given us everything that we need to see that accomplished in our lives. And so, this is where God's word and God's spirit comes in. And so in God's word, he set forth a standard for living, and his Holy Spirit worked with our conscience to show us where we fall short and how to use God's means to affect that change and even to give us the desire to change. Now look at John 3. John 3, verse 1 through 18. We'll get to this eventually when we actually start into John, and we'll deal with it more in depth at that point. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And Jesus answered him and gives a very strange answer to Nicodemus because Nicodemus seems to be affirming that uh, Jesus is from God, which if you go to John 17, you realize that's actually one of the purposes for which Jesus came was so that some would come to realize that the Father sent him. And so it appears as if Nicodemus is getting this right. But then Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus might have some facts straight here, but the reality is Jesus says you're missing something essential. And what he's saying to Nicodemus is you need spiritual rebirth. Now, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to Nicodemus. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What do you mean i got to be born again? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just touched on that a little bit, right? The Holy Spirit's moving, penetrating the heart of somebody who's just reading in their bedroom, uh, working in the heart of somebody who's driving home from a hockey game. Uh, The Spirit uh, moves where He wishes, and He produces new birth. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And who's the hour there? Well, it's Jesus, it's the Father, it's John the Baptist, it's the Word, it's all those things testifying to who Jesus is. And so now, Nicodemus, a religious leader, but he doesn't quite grasp what Jesus is saying. And so he asks the foolish question, can I return back into my mother's womb? Well, of course not. But what Jesus is doing here is he's using terms which Nicodemus should have understood because Nicodemus was the teacher. Right? So Nicodemus was a teacher in Israel, and so he should have been very familiar with the Scriptures, and he should have understood that Jesus was actually using Old Testament terminology when he said, you must be born of the water and the Spirit. This is a reference to the New Covenant. You understand, in the Old Testament, as Israel rebelled against God over and over and over again, part of God's covenant with Israel was not only promises of blessing, but also promises of curses if they were disobedient to the covenant. And so, ultimately, God's people, according to God's hand, were brought into captivity. The prophets then, prophesying to Israel, would tell them that captivity was coming and God's going to judge you because of your repeated unfaithfulness. I mean, just profane, vulgar, uh, immoral uh, unfaithfulness towards God, profaning His temple and profaning His name. Uh, He would bring them away into captivity, but with those promises of curses, God always gave hope and always promised future redemption. And so in Ezekiel, Ezekiel proclaiming captivity against God's rebellious people gives this promise. He said the day is going to come when God's going to make an everlasting covenant, a new covenant. He says in Ezekiel 36.25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Jesus is referencing Ezekiel. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. Ezekiel says that the Father at some point in the future to Israel will sprinkle them clean with water and will put a new spirit within them. The new covenant promise is that God would actually move from a covenant where there's external pressure 
saying, hey, here's rules that you must obey, the commandments. He would move to a new covenant, which actually would put the Spirit inside of us and then create an inward compulsion where he would actually change us from the inside out. And that makes all the difference. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The Spirit must transform you from the inside. You must be cleansed internally in your conscience, in your very spirit, Nicodemus. Otherwise, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Spiritual change. And so if you're here this morning and you are a new Christian, recently you've come to Christ, what has happened? He's put his spirit inside of you. He's made you spiritually new. You say, how come I don't feel completely new? Well, we're going to deal with that in a minute. He continues in Ezekiel and says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, that's new. That's completely different. And so that's the difference between here's a standard of rules that you must meet, and you continually fall and say, I just don't have it in me to keep those rules. And maybe you have that type of background where you tried to keep uh, some type of rigid, ritualistic, religious standard, and you found you always fell short. Well, yeah, you fell short because you are a fallen human being. And that's the weakness of the law. The weakness of the law is man's own fallen human heart. And so the promise is God's actually going to change us on the inside and then cause us to walk in his ways. Okay. And so this is what Jesus means when he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, look in verse 12 of John 3. After telling Nicodemus that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be born again, he then goes on to show how one becomes born again. Verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, when Israel sinned and the serpents came and that curse was there in order to be delivered from that curse, Moses put up that rod with the serpents on it, and all those who looked upon that with faith were delivered from the curse. And so Jesus said, the Son of Man must also be lifted up, but not upon a rod, he's going to be lifted up upon the cross. And all who look upon the Son... They're dying upon the cross for their sins, placing their faith in him. These also will be delivered, uh, not from the curse of serpents, but from the curse of sin. And so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's those who believe in the son who then are what? Born again. Born again. So have you believed in the name of the only son of God? That's the question. Have you received Jesus Christ as the savior of your soul and as Lord of your life? Have you been born again? That's real, spiritual, internal change. And that provides the ability for us then to see practical change. One of the chief works of the Spirit is the changes from the inside out. He revives our soul. He makes us spiritually new. He adopts us into the family of God and He dwells with us forever. That's the Holy Spirit. And He works within us to make us more and more holy, to make us more like Christ. 
this spiritual change ultimately results in real tangible change. Change in our thinking and our beliefs and our values and our priorities and our behavior. If you're here this morning and you're a new Christian, change should be happening in your life. Change should be happening in your life. Not a uh, reformation, not a do your best, pull yourself up from your own bootstraps kind of change, but a change that happens as you apply God's means. You're reading the Word of God, like Linda said earlier, the power of the written Word. You're reading the Word of God. You're spending time with Christian believers. Uh, You are weaning yourself off of the culture and off of the philosophies and value systems of the culture. Uh, You're doing this, and progressively, uh, the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside. The Holy Spirit also now serves as a present guarantee of the inheritance that we have waiting for us. Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That actually happened when you believed in Christ. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And it's like the Holy Spirit is that seed within you that ultimately at that final glorification is going to come to full, come into full bloom and then the full glory of the Spirit and your transformed life will be seen upon the coming of Christ. But until that time... You have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is present in your life. And do you know that the Holy Spirit can be both grieved and quenched? We can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sinful lifestyle. We can grieve the Holy Spirit as we uh, really give ourselves back uh, into the slavery of sin. We can quench the Holy Spirit as well. And so if the Holy Spirit is to be effective in changing us, then we want to live in such a way as to walk in step with the Spirit, as we're going to see in a moment. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so if you're a believer this morning, you have the spirit. The spirit is that anointing. The spirit is that seal which can never be broken. The spirit is that guarantee of future inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is God's agent of change. And so if you're a believer this morning... You've received the Spirit, God's seal, guarantee, promise that one day you'll be fully glorified in His presence. Beyond this, it's through the Holy Spirit that He's cleansed us from our guilt and united with us with Jesus. And practically speaking, it's through the Holy Spirit that He now gives us a new desire. A new desire and a new ability to obey Him. And so it's for this reason, if you're a Christian this morning, there is an expectation of progressive maturity and growth, right? I mean, uh, the writer of Hebrews and even the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians makes it plain that there's an expectation of maturity so that you can say to some, when you ought to be teachers, you're still in need of being taught, right? And that's not healthy. Uh, When you ought to be eating meat, you still need milk, and that's not healthy. That's an uh, indication that there's a growth problem. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you have the Holy Spirit, the expectation is as you use God's means, you are progressively becoming more like Jesus. And so this is a great time to stop and just do some self-examination. You ought to take a chunk of time, maybe a month or six months or a year or two years or five years, and you ought to consider your own spiritual growth. Could you see progress? Could you see maturity? Could you see that you're actually following that line of the expectation of progressive spiritual growth? Or would you say there's been stagnation? Has there been internal change? 
I have a growing love for my Lord. I have a growing desire to worship the Father in sincerity, truth, spirit and truth. I have a growing love for fellow believers. I want to be around fellow believers. It's encouraging, and I want to encourage. It's a blessing. You have a growing desire for His Word. You have a growing desire for worship. You have a growing desire for fellow believers. And then also, uh, can you look at your life and say, compared to where I once was, my appetites have changed. The indulgence in sin has, has, has really uh, uh, begun to change. Uh, I have a distaste for unholiness. I have a desire for that which is holy. Have you seen that happen as well? Have your relationships changed? The reality is the Spirit's existence, the Spirit makes His presence known, and the Spirit will, using God's means, bring us along to a progressive holiness, increasing in Christ-likeness. And so that's the expectation, and that ought to be observed in each of our lives. If you're a new believer, don't be discouraged. This is progressive, as we're going to see. Uh, But your responsibility is to apply God's means. Now, look at Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. I want you to look at Romans 8 so that you can see just how new this ability to change by God's Holy Spirit actually is. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And what does it say next? Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. And you say, well, that's pretty stark. That is, man in his natural state has no ability to submit to God's law. That's why uh, there was a need for a new covenant. Verse 9, you, however, Paul speaking to Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, what did we already just see in Ephesians and Corinthians? That if you have believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit is that seal and the guarantee. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Which means what was formerly true of you, not able to submit to God's law, not able to please God, that's no longer true. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, now you have the ability to please Him. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every Christian now has the ability to submit to God's law and to please Him. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. That means we all have that resurrection power already in us affecting spiritual change now and will actually affect resurrection change in the end. So then, brothers, what does he say? We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And so now Paul now begins a pattern we're going to see in the rest of this message. And that is, although God gives us the Holy Spirit, changes us on the inside, on the spiritual level, in a way only God can do, real practical change progressively happening over time also requires our efforts. So, Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to live to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He continues, for, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so on one hand, the Holy Spirit changes us. On the other hand, Paul is saying, now because the Holy Spirit has made us new, we have a new responsibility. We are in debt to God. And so what? Live like a child of God. We're no longer slaves to sin, so don't live like a slave. You're no longer at enmity with God, so live as his child. If you are a relatively new believer this morning, you have a responsibility. Get into the word of God. Figure out, understand what, 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 what God's new calling in your life is. What does he expect of you when it comes to worship? What does he expect of you when it comes to morality? What does he expect of you when it comes to relationships? That's your responsibility. You're a debtor, frankly, to, to discover what these things are through his means. Don't think you're off the hook if you're not a new believer here this morning. In this passage, we see that those without God's Holy Spirit, referred to as hostile to God, unable to submit to Him, unable to please God. And so we rejoice that God not only saves us from our sin, but He saves us from our inability to save ourselves. And so now He gives us a brand new ability to actually be able to obey Him and to please Him by His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes all the difference. Not only has the Spirit made us spiritually alive on the inside, but He now enables us to please God. Something impossible prior to salvation, but now true for everyone who believes in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, but you're trying to do it on your own, I'm a pretty good person. I think that I can please God in and of my own effort. It's an effort in futility. It cannot happen. And that's why Jesus could actually say to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you must be born again, or you'll not see the kingdom of God. So this is what it means to be born again. Every Christian has experienced a new birth and has become something entirely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, here's the question. 25 minutes in. Okay, finally getting to the meat here. Uh, Here's the question. If you've been made spiritually new on the inside by the Holy Spirit and you are born again, then why sometimes do you not feel entirely new? And why sometimes do you not actually live as if you are spiritually new? Right? You say, I don't feel a whole lot different. I mean kind of have a love for God, and I enjoy being around Christian people here and there, but, you know, frankly, some of those old habits or behaviors haven't changed. Why is that? Is this a time for you to question your salvation? Well, we got to do a little bit of theology here. you got to learn the difference between three major theological terms. Those three terms are regeneration, justification, and sanctification. Regeneration, justification, and sanctification. Don't be scared. The concepts are easy. Relatively easy. There's a difference between regeneration, justification, and sanctification. Sanctification, that increasing holiness that we've been talking about here, this internal change that is affected by the Holy Spirit that makes us more like Jesus, that's sanctification. That is a process. It is a process by which uh, the Holy Spirit makes us increasingly holy using God's means to see it affected. Okay? And so that's a process. There's a difference, however, between sanctification, regeneration, and justification. Regeneration, you can kind of tell by the word, regen, right? This is new birth, a new generation. This is the idea of being born again. That happens in a moment. So we said earlier, where were you when you got saved? When Jonathan was driving home from a hockey game and he placed his faith in Christ, 
He was regenerated. He was made spiritually new. On the spot, in the moment, uh, he was made new. Others said, uh, I was uh, at a breakfast. I was in my bedroom. In that moment, when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are regenerated. That happens in a moment, and that's irreversible. That happens on a spiritual level. Uh, That doesn't involve your effort. That's a sovereign work of God. That's regeneration. Okay? That's not a process. And then, the other big word we're talking about is justification. Happening simultaneously, I believe you are regenerated, and then God declares you righteous for the sake of Christ. You placed your faith in Jesus, and because you did that, God counts his righteousness as if it is yours, and he declares you righteous, pardoned, right? Uh, That is, the law no longer has any bearing upon you. You are delivered from its curse. You are declared righteous. That's justification. As far as the law is concerned, none of its penalties against sin stand against you. The perfect righteousness of Jesus has been applied to you so that you have a new legal standing before God. The law cannot condemn you. God's judgment towards you has been turned away. It's been satisfied in Jesus. You are declared righteous. That's a declaration. Okay, that happens instantaneously as well. So regeneration and justification. But here's the issue. If it was simply regeneration, you can say it this way. If it was simply justification, you're declared righteous... Well, that basically amounts to like a, just a second chance. Wipe the slate clean, you're declared righteous, now go do your best. But that's not what happened. You were also regenerated, which means you were given a new spiritual nature. So you're given the Holy Spirit, you're declared righteous, and now we come to the third word that we've been dealing with thus far, which is sanctification. Sanctification is very practical. It's the outworking of our regeneration and our justification. That is, you've been made spiritually new. That's a spiritual reality the moment you believe. Now the rest of your life is spent in that process of sanctification as you're made increasingly holy. So there's a difference, and we don't want to mix these things up. Whereas our standing before God is absolutely secure because of our justification, declared righteous, and we've now been made spiritually alive and able to please God through regeneration, We now have that ability through the Holy Spirit. It's from this new standing and with this new ability that we're now called to practically live out those spiritual realities, and that's what we call sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit actually makes us more and more holy in this life through the application of the means which God has given us for spiritual growth. Whereas justification and regeneration take place in a moment, sanctification is a process. And you're saying, really, Rick, this is for new believers? <laughs> we have high standards here. Whereas justification and regeneration can't be observed, sanctification will produce observable evidence. And so, if you're a new Christian, maybe you've been saved for a year, you probably have had friends or relatives or co-workers say to you, man, there's something different about you. Not because you can see the Spirit, but because the Spirit always makes His presence known in something we call the fruit of the Spirit. So turn to Galatians chapter 5. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. I said to you early, earlier that though sanctification is a work produced by the Holy Spirit, is not something that happens without our effort. And we're going to see this in Galatians chapter 5. And now we're going to see 
that although God has made us spiritually new on the inside, and although the Spirit is working to change us, and although He's given us everything we need to see that change affected, what we're going to see is that change does not happen without a battle. That change does not happen without a battle. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Such a key verse. Why am I always gratifying the desires of the flesh? Why do I think this way? Why do I do these things? Why am I always seeming like I'm indulging my flesh? How can I change this? Well, Paul gives it to us. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And so there's like an internal battle happening here, isn't there? And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The assumption being that you've been born again, you're transformed, the Spirit's in you, you want to live for God, but you still find a battle. Okay. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are... Now, this is where we meddle a little bit, okay? If you're a believer, God has called you to a new ethic. We're not, we're not about reformation. We're not about legalism. Understand the foundation here is the Spirit's presence in your life, okay? But this is the change which the Spirit is seeking to affect in your life through His means. We don't have any interest in anybody here looking at what we're about to read as a list for their own personal reformation, apart from the Holy Spirit, okay? We're not moralists. We're not just trying to moralize unbelievers, okay? And hang plastic fruit on a dead plant. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, as believers, we should not be participating in any of these. Sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Well, I mean, to answer that question, we've got to kind of look at what God's design for sexuality is. So God's design for sexuality is sex between one man and one woman within marriage and really married for life, right? That's God's design for sexuality, which means that sex outside of marriage is a violation of God's design for your life. That belongs to your old life. If you're a believer, uh, no sex outside of marriage. So, uh, and uh, that means sex between one man and one woman, uh, that's God's design. So anything that deviates from God's design of sexuality, sex between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage is a violation of God's design for us. That's, those are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. A lot of overlap in those three terms. Idolatry. And we might not be worshiping a idol carved out of wood, but there's certainly things in our lives that we seem to put all of our effort into and all of our desire into and seem to sacrifice other things for uh, beyond uh, uh, our own Lord. And so there are things in our life that are functional idols, that are functional deities, uh, that others can look at us and say, well, what does their life revolve around? Well, that's your idol. Sorcery. And then we get into relationships. Enmity, strife, jealousy. Somebody says, well, I'm pretty morally good. Yeah, but your attitude stinks. I'm uh, morally good, uh, but you're constantly fighting with others. Uh, you're constantly engaged in strife. You're overcome with jealousy. Uh, you're an angry person. You have rivalries, always competition, always seems to be competing with other people. Dissensions, divisions, envy. It goes on, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those are all, what, what does he say? Those are the works of the flesh. 
The implication being what? Those are opposed to the Spirit. Say, I want to grow spiritually. Well, are you participating in any of these things? Uh, That's going to grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And so these are not fit for the believer. The believer is to grow spiritually, and that uh, would include the abstinence from all of these things. Now, these are not things... Let's look back at this list. We said that salvation, or I'm sorry, sanctification is progressive. And we say it's a process that takes place. So does that mean that as a believer, you just progressively cut back on your sexual immorality? You just kind of progressively say, well, you know what? I'm going to be a little less sexually immoral, and as long as I'm making progress, uh, I'm okay. You say the same thing about envy and strife and jealousy? Of course not. These are these things that are to be rejected by the believer, out of hand. And so these are the works of the flesh. Now, look in verse... Oh, wait. He says, as I warned you before, verse 21, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's no wiggle room there. There's no room for somebody who continues in these things claiming to be a believer. And what Paul is saying is, listen, these are the characteristics of the flesh. The people who do do these things are those who have no, no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, he continues in verse 22, thankfully, and says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the flesh. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the evidence. Uh, Implied in all of that is the absence of that list he just gave us. But also, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And you say, okay, well, this is pretty good then. Because, I mean, we had that list there of the behaviors and the attitudes that we shouldn't be partaking in. I mean, that's, what a change, right? What a change compared to our former lives. But then we're thankful to say the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit's in me, the the Spirit's going to produce love, joy, peace, self-control, all that stuff. And you say, good, so I'm just going to sit back, put my feet up, let the Spirit do his work. But then Paul really throws a wrench in our plan in verse 24 because he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, that now seems like he's throwing it back on our laps like there's something we must do. Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, all those things we just listed, the sexual immorality and sensuality and impurity and so on, those are the passions and desires of the flesh. And Paul's saying that if you belong to Christ, you crucify those things. That old person is dead, right? I'm living a new life. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And now we come full circle, because remember in verse 16, he said, but I say walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so, why this sermon now? Why this study now? Not just because I'm not ready to get into John. Thankfully, at Calvary Baptist Church, and we're very thankful for this, we we see conversions. We see people coming to Christ. We see new believers, right? And not that this is only applying to new believers. But understand that as a church, our desire is to develop a culture that features a pursuit of holiness. Understand that as a church, as you become a believer, we believe the Bible teaches very clearly that you are now called to holiness. And again, not reformation, not legalism. Using God's means by His Holy Spirit. 
And so what we don't want is to create a culture where we have believers who believe they can participate in all the fruit of the flesh while believing that they're right with God, thereby lowering the standard of holiness, uh, rejecting any notion of spiritual excellence, and then really what do we do as leadership? Well, just let it go so that we don't rock the boat. Because frankly, Calvary Baptist Church is growing, and we don't want to ruin a good thing, so we don't want to address anybody's sin. Well... We believe that our calling is to holiness and that God has given us his Holy Spirit and all of his means to affect that change. And so we cannot create a culture in the church where we tolerate those things that Paul says. Those who practice these things, they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so the Holy Spirit is changing us, but it's up to us to walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Paul says it twice in Galatians 5, to walk by the Spirit. Well, I mean, we're in step with the Spirit. Your desire is to think as the Spirit would have you to think, and to react the way the Spirit would have you to react, and to behave the way the Spirit would have you to behave, and to control your flesh the way that the Spirit would have you to control your your passions. You say, but I don't know how to do that. How do I know? Well, that's why you have the Word of God. So you read his word, you see his holy standard, you talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You, before you make those major life decisions or those moral decisions, you talk to somebody and say, what does the Bible teach about this? Help me to see because I want to walk by the Spirit, right? So walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, let's look up another text here in Philippians chapter 2. Almost done. Philippians 2.12. And here, again, we see this tension between God's work in us and the need for our own effort. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live it out. Live it out. Live out your salvation. He says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Live out your own salvation. What motivates us to do that? The reality that we know God is actually the one in us, not only giving us the ability to work for His good pleasure, but actually giving us the will to do it. He actually changes us on the level of desire. God is working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so your desires ought to be changing. I want to please the Lord. I want to do this, but I want to please the Lord more. (laughs) I want to have this relationship. I want to please the Lord more. Uh, That's the will that he's working in you for his good pleasure. And so because he's working in us to will and work for his good pleasure, what? Work out your own salvation. So who's doing it, me or God? The answer is yes. On one hand, the Philippians were to work out their own salvation, but on the other hand, they were to do so because God was the one working in them. Well, let's look at another passage. Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 14. You say, okay, I get this. I have been growing in the faith, I think. I've been in the Word of God. There has been change in my life. But frankly, sometimes it feels like an internal battle. Well, welcome to the club. Romans 7, verse 14. Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Have you been there? Why did you just do that? Why did you say that? And you have that, you, you know, you, you have that internal dialogue with yourself. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in the inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He just cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. You've been there and I've been there. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not this is Paul writing, reflecting upon his life as an unbeliever before coming to Christ or whether this is the internal battle happening for someone who already is a believer. Uh, well, I'm not sure, but what I do know is that probably every genuine believer can identify with this struggle. Paul is saying, I want to do good and I don't end up doing good. And then once I don't do good, now I'm, I'm just I'm, you know, looking at myself saying, Who do you, you know, what are you doing? He just simply cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? But then he ends and says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your answer. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What he's saying, though, is that deliverance has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, and he has delivered me uh, from that losing battle. And so though there's still an internal struggle where I don't always do the things that I want to do, the reality is Jesus gives me the victory. So there is an internal struggle that still takes place, I believe, and that is borne out by every Christian experience. And so we're not those who teach perfectionism. I don't think that we're going to reach a place of sinless perfection in this life. There's always going to be a battle between flesh and spirit in our lives, but the point is, through Jesus Christ, we have everything we need to overcome and to see victory in that battle. So if you're a new believer this morning, don't allow the struggle to so discourage you that you kind of... Remove yourself from the fight. Understand that this is a lifelong battle. It's an internal battle between flesh and spirit. The good news is you have everything you need to walk by the Spirit. So don't be discouraged. Although it's not the normal state of a Christian to continue in a pattern of sin, we recognize that spiritual change is a process that takes effort and takes place over time. Now, in conclusion, because sanctification is a process, We will see varying degrees of success. And frankly, if you're a seasoned believer, you know that you go through seasons, don't you? You go through seasons. That is, there's times in your life where you just seem like, man, you're just growing. And then you kind of hit a rough patch, and it seems like you're not making a whole lot of progress. Maybe actually you take a step backwards here and there. But then another season comes, and you find yourself growing in the faith. And just that's just the reality of our human nature, right, and the nature of sanctification, You're going to see varying degrees of success throughout your life, but the point is, we are moving forward. We will experience ups and downs and highs and lows. Sometimes we feel discouraged. But it's during times like this that those big three terms that we learned earlier are really important. You realize when you're discouraged and you don't feel like you're growing, your sanctification seems a little rough, what do you remind yourself of? Your regeneration and your justification. You say, my sanctification is a little rough, But I know I've been born again. I know the Spirit's in me. How? Well, because the Spirit makes His presence known. I would have no desire to please God except except by the Holy Spirit. I'd have no desire to hear preaching from His Word if it were not by the Holy Spirit. I would have no desire to be around God's people having spiritual fellowship if it were not His Holy Spirit. He has regenerated me. I know that I love Jesus Christ. Right? 
My regeneration is secure. My sanctification is a bit rough right now, but I know I've been born again. And you say, because I know I've been born again, I know that God has justified me. So that even though I'm beating myself up, and I feel like garbage, and I think I'm absolutely unworthy, unworthy, oh wretched man that I am, what do you know? God's declared me righteous. So when he sees me in all of my struggles and all my failures, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I don't have to fear his wrath, his disapproval, because I'm accepted in the person of Christ. So my sanctification is rough, having a hard time here. I've made some mistakes. I've gone back to sin. Uh, I'm, I'm in an illicit relationship. I have a terrible attitude. Uh, I've reacted in a way I shouldn't. You know, you're discouraged. Your regeneration is secure. Your justification is secure. And it's on that foundation then that we just keep going, right? By his Holy Spirit. And so although we sometimes feel like our sanctification isn't going well, we're assured in our justification and regeneration. That's why it's important to learn theology. All that being said, we do acknowledge that God does expect to see spiritual progress. That's his will for his people, our sanctification. And so his expectation is that we're growing. He's given us everything for that purpose. And so there should come a time where we move from milk to meat. There should, should come a time where we move from uh, student to teacher. right? And so I said earlier, hopefully at some point we have a book produced for new believers. And maybe you're one who goes through that book and then becomes one who brings somebody else through that book. Well, that's progress. For this reason that the New Testament is full of passages which instruct Christians to no longer live like they once did because there expects to be a a progression of holiness. We're going to look at some of those passages even next week. We're going to kind of establish what it looks like when it comes to a, a biblical ethic and look at some passages that actually tell us explicitly, don't do this, but do this. We're not producing legalists. We're not encouraging reformation. But we acknowledge that our sanctification, though driven by the Spirit, includes our effort, and it includes a transformation in our mind and our thinking. And so after all... After all of that, we realize that this transformation is only possible for the Christian because he or she has been born again by the Holy Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet been born again, all of this is completely over your head. You know, what, what is all of this about? Maybe all you're taking away from this is that you need to be uh, more of a moral person. Well, that would be the wrong conclusion. You go all the way back to John chapter 3. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus simply responds to him and says, you must be born again. Jesus then shows Nicodemus how that new birth can take place. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, speaking of his crucifixion. And this is for you this morning if you're not a believer yet. Jesus says that whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, that invitation is to you. You must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what is, uh, how does one then become born again? Believe in the Son of God. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died upon the cross in your place, bore God's wrath against your sin because he was the sinless Son of God. He was buried, but death could not hold him. He rose three days later and is exalted at the right hand of God. 
Now, what? All who believe in Him, the Bible says, receive eternal life. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only Savior and as your Lord. And what happens? God declares you righteous. Grants you Jesus Christ's righteousness, having placed your sin upon Christ. You're declared righteous. You're made spiritually new on the inside. You're regenerated. He gives you His Holy Spirit. And then progressively over time, He makes you more and more like His Son. And He does so using uh, His means, the Word of God and prayer and your fellow believers and things like this. He does it progressively over time through His Holy Spirit, but also through our effort as we learn more about His Word and fellowship with His people and so on. And so He's going to make you more and more like Jesus Christ all throughout your life until that end when Jesus Christ returns and you're fully glorified in His presence, all because you first were born again, having placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so, maybe today will be that day where you can say, September 4th, Calvary Baptist Church, I came to believe in Jesus. It's the day of your regeneration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe your Spirit is real. We believe that he exists and dwells in every genuine believer. We submit to the reality of the Holy Spirit's ministry. We believe that your Holy Spirit applies your word and draws men and women to uh, you. We believe that your Holy Spirit makes us spiritually new. We believe your Holy Spirit then progressively, increasingly, practically makes us more holy like Christ. We believe that your Spirit convicts us of sin, helps us see ourselves in the Word of God, exposing our own sinfulness and showing us the behaviors and attitudes that need to change, and then actually affecting that change through your means. We just thank you for your Spirit. We recognize that upon Christ's death on the cross, as he rose again, the Bible teaches that he then gave gifts to men. He bestowed the Spirit upon us as the spoils of his victory over sin, death, and Satan. So we thank you for your Spirit as a gift and uh, the seal, guarantee. And now we pray that you'd help us to walk according to your Spirit. We pray for us as a church. We thank you for growth. We thank you for conversions. We thank you for new believers. Pray that you'd help us as a church to maintain your standard of holiness. Pray you'd help us to encourage one another to walk in step with the Spirit. Help us to use your means to do so. And then, Lord, we pray you convict. There's areas of our lives, especially as we looked at Galatians 5, with that list of sins. Uh, protect us as a church from impurity. We pray that if there's some here this morning who have made professions of faith but are carrying out those types of behaviors or attitudes. We pray that you convict them over that by your Spirit. Uh, Help them to see the need to repent of those things, and to turn from those things. And we pray that they would make those decisions, that their sanctification would not be hindered, but they'd continue in their spiritual growth. We recognize that some of those decisions may be hard. So we pray that you just give grace and mercy for those who might need to make major transformations in their life uh, and their desire to walk in step with the Spirit. And then, Lord, lastly, we just pray this morning for those who in this moment, because of your Spirit's work in their heart, are realizing their need for salvation. They know that they need their sins to be forgiven. They know that they need to be right with you. They know that they need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, we pray for these, that they would, through prayer, express their faith in Christ. We pray that you make them spiritually new. And we pray that they continue to walk uh, in the Spirit. Help us be an encouragement to them as new believers. And we pray that they'd make that decision to be publicly baptized in order to make that profession of their faith. Lord, we thank you for this and your goodness. We pray you continue to grow us as a church, no matter where we are in our stage of spiritual growth. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Amen.